Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Geraldine Largay? First, I'll look at the background of this case. I'll move to the timeline of the disappearance, then offer my analysis. In 2013, 66-year-old Geraldine Largay lived in Tennessee with her husband. She went by the name Jerry. She was married to a man named George. Jerry liked to hike trails in the area where she lived. She was looking for more of a challenge and decided to hike the Appalachian Trail. Her plan was to hike the entire length of the trail, from Springer Mountain in Georgia to Mount Cotadin in Maine. It is customary for a person hiking the Appalachian Trail to use a trail name. Jerry's trail name was Inchworm. Her journey started on April 23, 2013. She was with a friend of hers named Jane Lee. Jerry stayed in contact with her husband throughout the trip. They would meet from time to time so she could get more supplies. Jerry and Jane were planning on staying together for the entire trip. However, their plan fell apart on June 30, 2013, when Jane had to respond to a family emergency. So she departed from the trail. The pair was in the state of New Hampshire at this time, not far from the end of their journey. Jerry decided to continue hiking on the Appalachian Trail without Jane. On July 22, 2013, Jerry was in the state of Maine. Other hikers saw her on the trail at the Poplar Ridge Shelter. This was the last time she was seen alive. On July 23, Jerry was scheduled to meet with her husband, George, 22 miles away from the Poplar Ridge Shelter at the Route 27 crossing. George arrived as planned, but Jerry was not there. The next day, July 24, George contacted the authorities and told them that his wife was missing. A search effort was initiated. At around the same time, the search area was hit with heavy rain, which hindered the search effort. Even still, an extensive search effort continued for seven days. Among those searching were fire departments, the state police, the FBI, the Forest Service, the Border Patrol, the National Park Service, and other agencies. After the primary search effort was over, a lower-level search effort continued for over two years. There was no sign of Jerry. 
In October of 2015, Jerry's body was discovered by a contractor conducting an environmental survey aboard the United States Navy. Her remains were inside of a sleeping bag near Reddington Township, Maine. The sleeping bag was inside of her tent. Investigators were now able to reconstruct what happened and solve the mystery, in part because Jerry left a journal behind. Here's what happened to Geraldine Largay. On July 22, 2013, the day before Jerry was supposed to meet with her husband, George, at the Route 27 crossing, she walked away from the trail in order to relieve herself. She was unable to find her way back to the trail and became lost in the wilderness. This was at about 11 a.m. She tried to send a text message to her husband, but it did not go through. There was no cell service in that area. The message read, quote, In some trouble, got off trail to go to bathroom. Now lost. Can you call AMC to see if a trail maintainer can help me? Somewhere north of Woods Road, unquote. Jerry walked toward higher ground in an effort to get cell coverage. She reached her final location the next day, July 23, and set up a makeshift camp. At 4.18 p.m., Jerry attempted to send another text message, which read, quote, Lost since yesterday. Off trail three or four miles. Call police for what to do. Police. Jerry's tent was under several large trees in a dense wooded area. In Jerry's camp, investigators found a number of items in addition to the journal. For example, a map, a small Swiss army knife, a working flashlight, a toothbrush, toothpaste, and dental floss, earplugs, lighters, matches, candles, a small first aid kit, a rain jacket, two water bottles, one had a small amount of water in it, and a mylar space blanket. Jerry tied the space blanket between the branches over her tent. It appears as though she was trying to keep water off the tent. A few nearby trees had been charred black, which led investigators to believe that Jerry had tried to set fires. The authorities concluded that Jerry's death was caused by a lack of food and exposure to the elements. Now moving to my analysis. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy, and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together, we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here are my thoughts in a few areas that stood out to me in this case. Item number one, Jerry was very close to safety when she died. She was only about 200 feet from an area of open woods. 
which had good visibility. If she could have made it there, she would have seen which way to go. Jerry was within a half hour of a logging road. If she could have made it there, she could have followed that road to safety. She was less than two miles from the Appalachian Trail. And the location where she set up her camp was on land owned by the U.S. Navy. It was regularly used for training. Item number two, Jerry was not well prepared to hike the Appalachian Trail. The woman who hiked with her initially, Jane, said that Jerry sometimes struggled to keep up with her and was not good at navigation even with a compass and a map. Jerry had taken a wrong turn on the trail a few times. The compass that Jerry had was described as the size of a button from a suit coat, not one that could be trusted for navigation. Interestingly, prior to attempting the hike on the Appalachian Trail, Jerry did research about the trail, and she trained for the conditions. She even took a hiking course and went to several hiking camps. Jerry purchased a GPS tracker. Unfortunately, she lost it prior to becoming lost herself. Item number three, Jerry may not have been mentally prepared for the trip or mentally capable of completing it safely. She was afraid of the dark and afraid of being alone. In addition, she suffered from panic attacks and took anti-anxiety medication. One can certainly appreciate that she may not have wanted panic to run her life, but there is a difference between being brave and being reckless. Item number four, Jerry made a series of mistakes which contributed to her death. She did not have a way to communicate with the outside world. She should have known that her phone would not work in that area. She placed her camp in an area that searchers could not find. Jerry's tent was in dense woods and not visible from the sky. Jerry did not call out the searchers when they were close to her. At least three different search teams with canines had come within 300 feet of Jerry during the time when she was still alive. It is possible that she was unable to call out because she was exhausted, but she also continued to write in the journal, which makes it seem like she was functioning to some extent. Jerry crossed two small streams. She could have followed either of those downstream to safety. Item number five, before Jerry's body was found, the authorities said they investigated every single lead which was reported to them, including those introduced by psychics and reports that Jerry had been taken by Bigfoot. This makes me think that the police were not really investigating every single lead. Is the public supposed to believe that they interviewed Bigfoot? How did that conversation go? The police say to Bigfoot, we need to ask you a few questions about this disappearance in Maine. Bigfoot's like, let me get this straight. You could find me for this interview, but you can't find a missing hiker? Item number six, as I mentioned, Jerry left behind a journal. The journal was titled, George, Please Read. Again, George was Jerry's husband. Jerry made an entry every day until August 10. She did not make any more entries until August 18. So from August 11 to August 17, there were no entries. The August 18 entry was her final entry. It's not clear if this date is correct. If it is, that means that Jerry survived for at least 26 days. On August 6, Jerry recorded a request to whoever found her body. She wrote, quote, When you find my body, please call my husband George and my daughter Carrie. It will be the greatest kindness for them to know that I am dead and where you found me, no matter how many years from now. Please find it in your heart to mail the contents of this bag 
to one of them, unquote. Even facing death and almost certainly panicking, Jerry's love for her family was at the forefront of her mind. Item number seven, how would I conceptualize this case? This is just a theory, my opinion. Jerry had an unusual combination of personality traits. She was resistant to anxiety in some ways, for example, being a nurse in the Air Force, but susceptible to anxiety in other ways, like her fear of being alone and her fear of the dark. Jerry really wanted an adventure in her life. She wanted to do something amazing in her retirement to prove to herself that she could be successful at something different than what she was used to doing. The Appalachian Trail offered an opportunity to fulfill those goals, and it was something she liked doing for social reasons. She became friendly with various people that she met on the trail. As it turns out, Jerry was being too ambitious, but she did not want to let go of her dream. She was determined to finish what she started. This is why she continued on even after her friend had to stop hiking. On July 22, 2013, Jerry walked off the trail, probably just a few feet, and became disoriented. This caused her to panic. Under the effects of intense panic, Jerry was not thinking rationally. She was not able to act on all the training she had received, and her poor preparation only made her situation worse. Within two days, Jerry lost the will to live. She accepted a fate which she didn't have to accept. She was so close to civilization that the panic exhausted her. Jerry's death is a metaphor for panic. Panic makes people believe that they are in more danger than they really are. It pushes people to give up and collapse in on themselves. Which brings me to the final item, number eight. Panic is an insidious emotional state which causes a lot of damage. Diagnostically, a panic attack itself is not considered a mental disorder. A person cannot be diagnosed with panic attack. There is a mental disorder called panic disorder, which is where someone panics about having a panic attack, but only 13% of people who have a panic attack have panic disorder. The concept of a panic attack is captured as a specifier used with other disorders. Except for panic disorder, any mental disorder can be used with the panic attack specifier. For example, if somebody who had panic attacks also had obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, their diagnosis would be OCD with panic attacks. Now moving to my final thoughts. The case of Geraldine Largay exemplifies one of the dangers of having panic attacks. Repeated exposure to stress is often used to treat panic attacks, like exposure and response prevention therapy. However, there's a downside to this strategy. If a person has a panic attack in a life-threatening situation, they will not necessarily make good decisions, which may lead to a disastrous outcome. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.